Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Make sure we're ready to focus on God's Word this morning. Put away the distractions from yesterday or this afternoon or the coming week and focus our attention on His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning, for all that it has provided for us. It is due to your grace that we live in this uh, fantastic country, experiencing all the wonderful freedoms that we have. It is due to your grace that we continue to be protected from any more assaults of terrorism. Father, we pray that you would continue to give our national leaders wisdom as they conduct the war on terrorism. We pray that you would restrain the forces that would seek to destroy this administration. And Father, we pray that you would continue to provide uh, wisdom to those who are in the security forces who are investigating and seeking to prevent any more terrorist attacks. Father, we pray that you would continue to prosper this nation so that we can continue the work of sending out missionaries and that we may continue as steadfast supporters of the nation Israel. Uh, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we might uh, be challenged by it and responsive to that challenge. We might have the objectivity from the doctrine that we have to think about your word in terms of its own personal application and that as God the Holy Spirit makes these things clear to us that we would be uh, willing and responsive to that challenge. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But we won't spend a whole lot of time looking at that verse. 1 Corinthians 3.16 introduces for us a concept that is familiar. The concept, the doctrine of the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And for you and for me, we've talked about that. We think we understand that. And one of the interesting things for me is as I have begun to probe more deeply into what this means and the significance of this, uh, I'm beginning to relate some things that we have studied both in the Gospel of John and the Upper Room Discourse because there are many passages in the Upper Room Discourse where Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit coming and the Holy Spirit being in us, as well as passages related to abiding, passages that we have studied in First John. And the result is that uh, it, as I was doing some work this last week looking through uh, various uh, resources, I began to realize that a number of the verses that are usually cited to support the indwelling of either Christ or the Holy Spirit were in context out of the uh, Upper Room Discourse that I think had more to do with abiding and fellowship than they had to do with position. And so that's caused me to think, think about some other things, and I'm uh, it's always fun for me as a pastor to start digging away into some things that perhaps haven't been as uh, clearly explained or understood as we think they have. And we often talk about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, but just exactly what that means somehow escapes us. So we are continuing to investigate the question based on 1 Corinthians 3.16, what does it mean that you are a temple of God as described in 
1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Let's look at the verses. There are two key verses. We'll come back to this subject again in 1 Corinthians 6. Part of this is because the Corinthians had a real problem understanding the role of the Holy Spirit, and they were constantly getting messed up because they were taking a lot of ideas and concepts from their pagan, ecstatic, mystical uh, involvement in the mystery religions and trying to, uh, they were interpreting the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's ministries in that frame of reference. So pa- Paul has to deal with the Holy Spirit many times in different dimensions of his ministry to the believer. And he begins here with the question in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And then he expands on this concept of being a temple of God a little bit in 1 Corinthians 6.19. And he says there, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Now, we have been studying this for the last uh, two or three lessons. We missed some last week when I was down in Houston. And by the way, I gave some comments on Wednesday night, if you weren't here, on ordination, but it was a uh, very good ordination. Dan did quite well, and his uh, oral examination on... uh, Last Saturday, Saturday a week ago, it's a very formal affair, and all of the candidates sit up front faced by the ordination council, and they're grilled on various questions. It takes about two and a half hours. No one knows what questions they're going to get hit with, and so they have to demonstrate poise, and they have to demonstrate a relaxed mental attitude, and they have to demonstrate the ability to not only think on their feet, but to be able to explain various doctrines. And and that is indication of whether or not they have a communication gift such as pastor teacher. So everybody did quite well, and Preston City Bible Church was uh, uh, represented well. There were about six or eight down there who came from here, so that was good. Ron was there and Jeff, and so if you uh, uh, want to ask them what it was like, you can talk to them at the break. So we have been covering the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and answering a few key questions in order to help understand what this means, that you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. The first question is what to, that we have asked is, what does it mean that you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are a, quote, temple of God? What does that mean that you are a temple and in order to understand the concept of temple, we had to look at the Greek word there, and we saw that it was the uh, more uh, detailed, narrow word, naos, N-A-O-S, in the Greek. There are two words in Greek for temple. And it's important to distinguish the two. The first is naos, N-A-O-S, and the second is Hieros, H-I-E-R-O-S. Naos had to do with the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies and the holy place, whereas Hieros could refer to the entire uh, temple grounds, including the uh, courtyard and the outer areas. So this is important to understand that we're talking about the inner sanctuary here. And the idea that it is a temple of God indicates that there is some sort of dwelling presence of God. That led to the second question that we have been attempting to answer, and that is, what does it mean that the Spirit of God dwells in you? What kind of dwelling is this? And the Greek uses a phrase, oikeo in humen, and this is another important concept we are having to study. The verb oikeo which means to dwell. It's from the word oikos, meaning a house, and uh, that's spelled O-I-K-E-O. Got a note from one of the one of our tapers this last week that I needed to make sure I spelled everything out because it's a little tough sometimes for them to, uh, since they can't see the overhead, um, can't quite see through their computers or through their uh, tape recorders. Oikeo. And then we have this phrase, in 
who men. And this is the preposition in plus the uh, dative plural from the pronoun ego, E-G-O, which is the first person singular I. That's how you parse it in Greek. But this is the second person plural. That's y'all for those of you who don't understand what a first second person plural is. Now, some that has led some, as I've pointed out before, that has said, led some to the belief that this is a corporate indwelling, that God the Holy Spirit indwells a corporate body, the church, that when the body of believers meets, the Holy Spirit is there. And you see that in some hymns. That just occurred to me. I can't think of... Uh, one right now, but you'll see that in some, most of the hymns about the Holy Spirit are pretty screwball anyway, so you don't want to sing about 99% of them. But it has this idea this is corporate. The problem is that when Paul addresses individual application to the Corinthians, he always uses a second person plural because he is addressing them as a group, but the application is for each individual within the group. So when I, as a speaker, would say to all of you to pray, I would be using a second-person plural, meaning all of you, but I expect every individual within that group to be applying the principle of prayer. So Paul is saying, doing the same thing. He's using the second-person plural because he's addressing the group, but the application is to each individual within the group. So we have to understand this concept of the Spirit of God dwelling in you, and this key phrase, either the verb oikeo or katoikeo, another form of the verb, and the phrase in you is crucial for understanding in all of the key passages that, that we're going to look at. And then the third question that we're examining or that, that we're answering is, how are we to understand the concept, especially in 1 Corinthians 6.19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then furthermore, we could say, in what sense are we to take that phrase of the Holy Spirit? So we're going to investigate these as we go through our study. Now, in terms of review, I want you to get the big picture. I don't want you to get lost because as I'm building, I'm building this almost from Sunday to Sunday, a case-by-case our block-by-block construction of this vital doctrine. We began by looking at the concept of God dwelling in the panorama of biblical history, that God is always seeking to dwell in the presence of his people. There was a dwelling presence of God in the Garden of Eden. There's a dwelling presence of God on the earth from Eden to the flood, indicated by the fact, as I've pointed out in Genesis 6-3, that God said, my spirit will not uh, the King James translated it strive, but the word there is a Hebrew hapax legomena that probably means, uh, based on um, uh, cognate languages, to dwell. My spirit will not dwell with you continually. Then we see especially the key instance in the Old Testament of his dwelling with the tabernacle, but there's a dwelling on the earth in the presence of Christ, and then again in the church, and each individual believer, and eventually in the millennial kingdom. So from creation of the present heavens and earth to the creation of the next heavens and earth, there is a continual theme of God's dwelling among his people. The second point that we looked at was that the most clear example of the dwelling of God among his people began in the Old Testament with the Exodus and the dwelling of the Shekinah glory as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night in the tabernacle and later the the temple. And we looked at the construction of the temple itself. This is a diagram of the holy place in the, in the temple. And if we look here, this is very, the same kind of, the same layout applied to the tabernacle as well. It just wasn't uh, quite as large. You have two areas, the outer area in the holy place, which is uh, the holy place itself, where you have the golden candlestick representing Jesus Christ as the light of the earth, the table of showbread representing Jesus Christ as the bread of life, and the altar of incense indicating his continual intercessory prayer for the believers. Then inside, in the inner sanctum, you had the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant 
resided, and it was over the Ark of the Covenant that we have the presence of what became known as the Shekinah glory, the presence of God. We saw this. Uh, here's another look. This is the tabernacle itself, which was the temporary uh, mobile home sort of dwelling for God until he got a permanent home in the in the temple. You have the this uh, area here under the tent is the tent of meeting. This is uh, the holy place. And then you have the outer courtyard and the uh, curtain around the tabernacle itself. Here's another view of what the uh, holy place looked like as you looked into the outer room where the table of showbread, altar of incense, and golden candlestick would be. The red curtain here is the veil between the outer room and the inner holy of holies. There's a picture of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and it was here on top of the Ark, on the lid of the Ark, where the presence of God would dwell. And we saw this and from two passages in the, in the Old Testament, Psalm 99.1, where we read, The Lord reigns, the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. So this is a picture on the top of the Ark, of the throne of God, the cherubim looking down upon the mercy seat, and God is pictured as sitting or dwelling above them, and this is his abode amongst his people in the Old Testament. Isaiah 37:16 also mentions this, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who art enthroned above the cherubim. So this is viewed as the th- earthly throne of God, ruling as the king over the theocracy of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, as we studied that, two key terms emerged in relationship to the presence of God amongst his people in the Old Testament. The first is kabod, which means glory. The exact meaning of kabod is something which is weighty, something which is heavy, not unlike the 70s slang that something was heavy, man, it's real heavy. You know, it's serious. That relate to God's glory. It came to be applied to that physical manifestation of His character as God. Remember, and we're going to study this in First John, that God is a God of light. So you have on the one hand this physical manifestation of His glory, but the glory is that that physical manifestation is merely a representation of his character. So we have to start dividing glory into two concepts, a physical concept and a non-physical or immaterial concept. Then the second word is shakan, meaning dwelling, and it is that word from which the Hebrew word where the word shekinah derived. Now the term shekinah isn't a biblical word, it is a rabbinical term, that was coined to refer to this dwelling of God in the Old Testament. The Shekinah is continuously referred to in the Old Testament as the presence of God or the glory of God, and then Shekinah came along as an intertestamental word which described this same uh, phenomena. Fifth, we saw that the dwelling of God in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, was a physical reminder to Israel of God's presence and blessing for the nation. Because God dwelt in them, there was a, that, that reminded them of the covenant they had with God and that God would bless them. It was when the glory of God departed, and Isaiah saw that in uh, his vision. It was that departure of the glory of God that signified the onslaught of the fifth cycle of discipline and judgment on the nation uh, Israel in the Old Testament. So the presence of the glory indicated some sense of security and blessing for the nation Israel. Then we went on to say that the Old Testament concept of the glory of God is specifically connected in the New Testament to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate ministry and in his role as revealer of the Godhead. And we went through a number of passages in our last lesson demonstrating this, focusing on uh, a number of key passages. And one I want to spend a little time on this morning is found in John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. John 1 is one of the most important passages on the person of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. 
And in John 1.14 we read, And the Word became flesh. We know from John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, that John uses the term logos, translated word in English, that the term logos is a technical title for the Lord Jesus Christ. And in John 1.14 we learn that this Word that is full deity became flesh that he became incarnate. That's what the word incarnate means, is to become flesh, and dwelt among us. And then John goes on to say, And we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So we beheld the glory of, of the second person of the Trinity, or the disciples did. And then John goes on to say about him in verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So it's the clear witness of the New Testament that Jesus Christ pre-existed his incarnation. He is eternal, as that's part of deity, and he is. that means there never was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist. When he existed prior to the incarnation, he was just a deity. Now he has had true humanity joined to that in the hypostatic union. Verse 16 of John 1 reads, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Then in verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So when you connect John 1.14 with John 1.18 in the statement that no man has seen God at any time, we realize that, that no one in the Old Testament saw God the Father. The manifestations in the Old Testament were always of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and as such were, were manifestations. He has fulfilled his role as the revealer of the Godhead. So that that's where we've been. We've seen the Old Testament concept of the glory of God indwelling his people. We've looked at the New Testament teaching on who Jesus Christ was, and we've seen that the New Testament relates that back, describes the glory of Jesus Christ in his person, and relates that back to the indwelling presence of God in the Old Testament. So the conclusion that we reached last time is that the Shekinah glory the presence of God in the Old Testament was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Now that leads us to the next plank in our construction of this, this doctrine, and that is, uh, that involves the question, who indwells the believer? Who indwells the believer? Now we have taught many times that the believer is indwelt by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now I want to look at the doctrine that underlies that and the verses and help you understand that because this is not something that is commonly accepted or commonly understood even among Orthodox Bible students. And you need to understand why it is that we say that we are indwelt by both God the Holy Spirit and God the Son. And we will gradually build this doctrine. And this, there are many things that we need to look at. I doubt I get through the whole thing this morning, but who knows. God may be gracious. Point one, we have to answer the question, is the indwelling of Jesus Christ distinct from the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit? In other words, are these two distinct indwellings of two distinct personages, or are these simply synonymous concepts for one indwelling? Are there two distinct indwellings or one indwelling? That's really the basic question. And there are two positions that are taken by Bible students on this this uh, teaching. The first position is that these are synonymous terms. And these writers suggest, and these theologians suggest, that Christ's indwelling is simply mediated through or by God the Holy Spirit. In other words, Christ indwells the believer through the Holy Spirit. And there seem to be some passages that support that, uh, and so we need to look at what they mean by that and examine a few of those passages. First of all, what they do is they do separate personality. They do recognize that God the Holy Spirit is a distinct personality from God the Son. 
but they don't separate the activities or ministries. In other words, according to them, what one does, the other does. And the activities of one, for example, the activities of Jesus are equivalent to the activities of the Holy Spirit. And that because God the Holy Spirit is subordinate to God the Son, to say that God the Holy Spirit indwells the believer is to say God the Holy, our God the Son does because he does, he, he is, uh, has uh, is ministering to the believer through or by means of God the Holy Spirit. Now, the way they, the one reason they say that is because of the term Spirit of Christ that is used many times in the Old Testament. And what they try to do is make that a term where the phrase Spirit of Christ is a genitive, is a, uh, they try to make that mean a genitive of source. Once again, we get into grammar. When we have in the English a phrase that involves the preposition of, that usually relates to a genitive construction in the Greek. Now, there's at least 18 or 20 different ways in which the genitive case can be used. It can describe relationship. For example, you may say that uh, someone is the daughter of Bill. That means that Bill's the father, so that's a genitive of relationship. You can say that that that, um, that car, that's John's car, and we use an apostrophe S, and that is a genitive of possession. You can say that um, uh, that uh, that work was done uh, uh, of someone, indicating that they are the originator of a certain amount of work. You can indicate a number of other different things. Uh, with the genitive case, and so we always have to ask, what is the nature of the genitive here? Now, this phrase, Spirit of Christ, can be taken one of two distinct ways. The first is that this can be, ref- be taken as a genitive of source, and in this case, this would mean the Spirit who comes from the source of Christ. And this would then indicate a distinct that this is would be the Holy Spirit and is distinct from the person of Christ. So Christ sending the Spirit who comes from the source of, of Christ. Now the second way to look at this is a genitive of possession. A genitive of possession. And in this case, it is Christ's own spirit. So be a, uh, the spirit of Christ would be another way of talking about the person of Jesus Christ himself. Now, there are a number of different passages that use a phrase related to the spirit of Christ, either the spirit of Christ or the spirit of the Lord or the spirit of his son. And in each case, we have to... Um, look at the context to determine whether the phrase is the first option or the second option. It is not the same in every case. You can't just say it always refers to the same thing. Let's look at a couple of examples. First of all, in Romans 8 9 we read, However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, there you have the same kind of thing with the Spirit of God. Is this God the Father's Spirit, being God the Father himself, or is this the Spirit who comes from God? And we would take it in the second way, the Spirit who comes from God, that is God the Holy Spirit. And we get that in context because Paul has been talking about the Holy Spirit all the way down through 8-9. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, there we could say that this second term, Spirit of Christ, could also refer to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is sent from Christ. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, and if Christ is in you. See, it doesn't say Spirit of Christ there. It specifically refers to Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. 
So in 8.10, Paul is clearly saying that Christ is in you. So that means the term Spirit of Christ in 8.9 must be taken as Christ himself, Christ's own Spirit, in contrast to the Holy Spirit. So that's why con- one reason why context is so important. Then again, in 2 Corinthians 3.17, we read, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And in that verse, which we'll probably get to in terms of exegesis next week, it seems from the context that the Spirit of the Lord there is referring to God, the Holy Spirit. Then in verse uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. By comparing that with Romans chapter 8, we know that this is the Holy Spirit. This is not uh, Christ. This is not talking about Christ, but the Holy Spirit who comes from or who is sent by or proceeds from the Son. Philippians 1.19 states, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And there it's referring not to Jesus Christ, but to the Spirit who proceeded from Jesus Christ, who is the source of all provision and enablement in the spiritual life, and that is the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Peter 1.11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And there again it refers to the Holy Spirit and not Jesus Christ himself. So in most of these they refer to the Holy Spirit, but in others they refer to Jesus Christ himself. So the phrase can be uh, taken in two distinct ways. Now, we have a second point, and that is that we must recognize that at the instant of salvation, the believer is inseparably united to Jesus Christ by the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. We've spent a good time studying that concept, so I don't need to belabor the point. But at salvation, we are identified with Christ, and we are united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, and that's called the baptism uh, by means of the Holy Spirit. And this also means that Jesus Christ is in the believer. That's point three. This also means that Jesus Christ is in the believer. And for support for that, we have the phrase in Romans 8:10, If Christ is in you, the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So at salvation, we are indwelt by Jesus Christ. There is a clear distinction there. Point number four, 1 Corinthians 3.16 makes it clear that the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. That's that phrase we looked at earlier, oike in humen, that the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer. So we have two clear statements of two distinct dwellings now. Romans 8.10, Christ is in you, same phrase, in humen. And 1 Corinthians 3.16, that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, in whom in. It's the same phraseology. So from Romans 8.10, 1 Corinthians 3.16, it's clear there are two indwellings. Now, point number five just emphasizes the <coughs> common phrase, in whom in, in Romans 8.10 and 1 Corinthians 3.16. This phrase, in human, meaning in you, is crucial and is used in a number of different places. But you always have to examine the context to see just exactly what this means. Sometimes the phrase, in you, is positional. For example, that's how Romans 8.10 should be taken. Christ is in you at the point of salvation, and stays in you. It doesn't have to do with anything we do or don't do. It's part of our package that we get at the instant of salvation, part of those 39 things that plus one relative thing that Christ does for us at salvation. Another passage where we have it as an absolute concept relating to our position is in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19 related to the Holy Spirit being in us. But it's also used of the dwelling of Christ in an experiential way. 
I want you to open your Bibles, because I want to pick up the context, and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to specifically look at verse 17, but before we get there, we need to look at the context just a little bit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. See, the trouble that I've had getting into this doctrine is that it wraps into some really crucial passages that demand just a wealth of exegesis because uh, it's not something that um, uh, you just jump, some of these passages that you just jump into. Now, Ephesians 3.17 is a passage that I have found is continuously seemed to be used as a positional verse. Uh, let's put the verse up on the overhead. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, if we look at Ephesians 3, uh, 16, let's pick up the whole context. Go back to the beginning of the paragraph, verse 14, where Paul begins this prayer. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you. Now, here is the key verb in a positional clause, I mean, in a a purpose clause, that's the that, there's a hena clause in the Greek, that he would grant you, and this is stating the purpose, and the purpose is expressed through a uh, present, active, subjunctive, that subjunctive mood indicates potential that he might grant you, once again, second person plural, but who is he addressing? He is addressing believers. So they are already saved. They're church-age believers. They already have received the 39 plus 1 things that we all get at the instant of salvation. You, second person plural, you believers, and yet this is referring to a potential, not an actual. The indwelling of Christ as a positional reality is an actual from the point of salvation on. It's not potential. The second person plural present active indicative here of didomi, D-I-D-O-M-I, of didomi, which means to give, to grant, to to bestow, it is a key word for anything related to grace, and that's the main idea in God's giving, that he might grant to you according to the riches of his glory. Notice that phrase, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. And then we come to verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, that introduces an aorist infinitive for um, dwelling here, katoikeo. The aorist infinitive is translated as potential because the main verb in the clause is that present subjunctive of didomi. That's going to govern. See, an infinitive doesn't have a subjunctive sense, a potential sense. It's just to do something. It just expresses purpose. But you pick up the potential because of the main verb, that that he's talking to believers and he's saying he's praying this in order that something might happen. Now, if I'm talking to you as a believer and I'm talking about the indwelling of Jesus Christ, I'm not going to pray that you will get it because you already got it at the instant of salvation. So when he's talking about the indwelling of Christ here, he can't be talking about indwelling at the instant of salvation because that's already occurred. It's not a potential, it's an actual. So Paul writes, or Paul prays, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is talking about experiential relationship of Jesus Christ dwelling in our life. So the potential is there from the dwelling of Christ in the temple, but it's activated only when we are in fellowship. Let's connect this with the concept of abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us that we've been studying in First John and we've studied in John. It's dealing with being in fellowship and that taking the potential of Christ indwelling and making it act actual in terms of his abiding ministry. And this 
and this is seen also in the construction, for he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And this takes the precedence for the full abiding of Christ to be uh, rooting and grounded in love, which is what we're going to see is John's message all through uh, the center point of First John, and that is that to experience the full uh, abiding ministry of Jesus Christ in our life means that we have to reach spiritual maturity, which is indicated by our love for God the Father and our love for one another. Now, Ephesians 3.17 is simply to show that this concept of dwelling in you can be, in some passages, uh, experiential and not positional. But then we have passages like John 17.23 where Jesus is praying as, as our high priest to the Father. This takes place the night before he goes to the cross. And he says, I in them and thou in me that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and did love them, even as thou didst love me. So Jesus is using this positionally, I in them. He is in the disciples. He is indwelling them. And the most central passage for understanding this, though, is Colossians 1.27. To whom God willed to make known... What is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory? Now let's look at that phraseology a minute. God will to make known the riches of his glory of this mystery. It ties it to the mystery doctrines. He is making known the riches of the glory, and then we have a, a relative clause that defines that as Christ in you. That's the riches of glory. Now, while you're looking at Colossians 1.27 up on the overhead, let me read to you what Ephesians 1.16 said, that he would grant to you according to the riches of his glory, that he might grant to you according to the riches of his glory. What does the phrase riches of his glory refer to? The term riches of his glory in Ephesians 3.16 and when compared with Colossians 1.27, is the wealth that we have because of the indwelling of Jesus Christ. And it is that indwelling of Christ which is then parlayed by Paul into a future confident expectation of glory. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing a connection between Christ as the riches of glory with the hope of glory. So what's the key term here? It's glory. What was present in Israel in the Old Testament was the concept of glory. So the indwelling of Christ is related to glory. It is a potential until the believer learns doctrine and applies doctrine, and then it becomes an actuality because he is growing and advancing in the believer's life. Now, we're going to tie that to some other passages, for example, in Second Corinthians chapter 5, which says that we're moving from glory to glory, and that is the glory of our salvation to glory as we mature in the believer's life. And that leads us to the question which we will answer in a minute, and that is what is exactly does this concept of glory mean? Now back to Colossians one twenty seven. Christ is in you, same phraseology, in whom in, Christ is in you, the hope, Hope is elpis here in the Greek, which means confident expectation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So glory here, at the, the second use of glory, refers to something that is anticipated with conviction and confidence that is yet future, whereas we already have obtained the riches of the glory, which is Christ in you. So we have the potential, we have the reality of Christ indwelling, which is one source of glory, which is the basis for reaching a future glory. And the glory here is not talking about heaven. Okay, now some people who think of heaven, when I die and reach glory land. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. The conclusion that we reach so far from Colossians 1.27, this is point number six. The conclusion from Colossians 1.27 is that the re, it's the reality of Christ in dwelling presence 
that provides the believer with the basis for a future expectation of glory. Now that leads to the question of what is glory. Conclusion from Colossians 1.27 is that Christ's presence, present and dwelling in the believer provides the basis for a future hope of glory. Now the concept to understand glory, we have to once again go back into the Old Testament. Once We have to understand while there are some concepts in the New Testament, because Paul is dealing with the Greek culture, he does use some idioms that have their source in, in understanding uh, classical Greek. The primary frame of reference for much of this terminology is not contemporary Greek culture for Paul, but is the Old Testament theological concepts. So we have to look at glory in the Old Testament. Now, glory had two expressions. As I said earlier, we have the expression of the physical manifestation where you have the bright light, the, the pillar of fire. You have the blinding a brilliance of God's presence when Isaiah is before the throne of God in Isaiah 6.3. And remember, that verse is referred to, we saw last time, by the Apostle John. We'll see it again in a few minutes, that Isaiah saw Christ's glory. So the glory that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 is described by John as the glory of Christ. So that is the physical manifestation of his brilliance, as the writer to Hebrews says, the flashing forth of his radiance in Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. So we have this first expression, which is a physical brilliance, and we see this in the New Testament on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17 takes place in the latter period of Jesus' ministry on the earth. And we have an episode here where his glory, that physical manifestation of his glory, is revealed to his disciples. Here we're told, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. This is John, the writer of the Gospel of John. That's important for the application I'm going to make in a minute. Six days later, Jesus goes up on this mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Until that point, they just saw him in terms of his humanity. His deity was completely veiled. That's the purpose of Philippians chapter Philippians chapter 2, which talks about the fact that, that, that in the kenosis passage there that Christ... Uh, did not think holding on to, to deity was something to be grasped, but he actually he veiled his attributes. He veiled his, his glory there. And um, uh, this is the unveiling of his glory to show his, to reveal that to his disciples. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him, and Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Peter once again demonstrates that he doesn't have a clue what's really going on. And he opens his mouth and inserts his foot before he thinks. We all relate to Peter in many, many times. Uh, verse 5, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their face and were much afraid. This is the event known as the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory that is revealed here, this is the only time in Christ's earthly ministry where the, the brilliance of his glory is unveiled and manifested to his disciples. This is the first category of the glory, and that is the physical manifestation of it. But there's another passage that relates to the glory of Christ, and I do not believe it refers to this brilliance. It has another connotation, and this is what is important for us to understand. We looked at this verse already. We'll go back to it again. That's John 1, verse 14. John said, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John is writing this. 
John's 90 years old or 85 to 90 years of age when he writes this in approximately 90, 90 A.D. And he was one of the three disciples that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so you will often hear it interpreted that, that when John says, we beheld his glory, he is referring to the Mount of Transfiguration. However, that is not how John uses glory in his gospel. He has a distinct concept of glory, and it is not this overt physical manifestation of the brilliance of Jesus Christ's deity. And I want to show you this because this is why it's important to understand how different authors use words in different ways. Look at John 2.11. We're just going to just hit some high points. I've got several passages in my notes. We may not have time to necessarily go through all of them, but I'll look at a few of them just to make my point. John 2.11, this relates, this is the verse that follows the changing of the water into wine, Jesus' first miracle at the wedding of Cana. Now, at the wedding of Cana, Jesus is, just to remind you of the story, Jesus is invited to the wedding. He comes, his mother's there, uh, they ran out of wine. And so his mother came to him and, and asked him if he would please do something. And, and he says, well, my hour hasn't come yet. It's not time for me to do this. But nevertheless, he, he respects her request, and he is going to solve the problem. But he doesn't, I mean, there's no big miracle. He doesn't call everybody's attention to what he does. He just changes the water into wine. It is a very subdued miracle. Nobody even knows anything has happened uh, until the... Uh, a head waiter comes to the uh, uh, groom and says, well, why are we serving the good wine now? Usually you serve the good wine first and then the cheap stuff because by the time they've had one or two or three or four glasses of wine, they're not going to be able to taste the difference between the expensive wine and the cheap wine. You know, now we pull out the Thunderbird or the uh, Boone's Farm or whatever it is. I just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. Don't laugh too hard. You may reveal something about your past. Well, it's at the conclusion of this that John says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. Now, if Jesus manifested his glory at at, at Cana, it wasn't the brilliant flashing forth of the white light and the demonstration of his deity like on the Mount of Transfiguration. How did he demonstrate his glory? By doing something that indicated his deity. In other words, it is, it is, it's very subdued. It has to do with, with performing in terms of his nature and a demonstration of his character. We see this uh, again. Let's go to another passage. Um, we'll just skip some of these on I have on glory. John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Nicodemus is, I mean, not Nicodemus. Uh, Lazarus is sick. Jesus and his disciples are up north in Galilee. Uh, Lazarus lives with his two sisters in Bethany, a suburb of Jerusalem, a two- or three-day journey from the north. And... A message has come to Jesus that, that Lazarus is sick. He's desperately ill, and they want him to come and heal him. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son may be glorified by it. And then Jesus says at the conclusion of this episode, when he is talking to Martha, he says, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Well, they didn't see the glory of God in terms of the glory as manifested on the Mount of Transfiguration. What they saw was a revelation of the character, the compassion, and the grace of God by what Jesus did. So once again, we see the application of doctrine, as it were, which reveals character, is what is meant by glory. So glory has two connotations. One is that physical manifestation, but the physical manifestation is simply a representation of the character of God. And it is the character of God itself that is the core issue in glory. Now that's going to be important because when the believer is going to be revealing the glory of God in his life, it's not so somebody's going to look at you and they're going to see a halo around your head or they're going to see some brilliant white light, but what is displayed is the character of Jesus Christ. 
And so because Jesus Christ indwells us as the riches of his glory, which is a potential, then when we grow and mature as believers and that abiding in Christ produces through the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Holy Spirit, that produces in us the character of Christ, which which is the fruit of the Spirit, then that demonstrates the glory of God. And that is what is meant here. So glory has two connotations, that external connotation, and the primary issue, though, is the character of Jesus Christ. So the conclusion to point seven is that the manifestation of divine glory in the church age is the manifestation of the character of Jesus Christ, not the brilliance of his glory or the flashing forth of some brilliant white light. The eighth point, now we advance a little bit in our understanding. The, um, well, let's look at a couple more passages on glory back on point seven. I want to go through what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer. His high priestly prayer, Jesus says in verse five, Now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. When is this going to happen? This is going to happen the next day on the cross. Jesus Christ is glorified on the cross. Now, once again, there's no amount of transfiguration flashing forth there. The glory is that he demonstrates the love of God. What did John say in 1 John 4.11? By this we know the love of God that he gave his son for us. So the cross demonstrates the character of Jesus Christ. Again, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus said, The glory which thou hast given me I have given to them that they may be one. So there is a the, the unity of the body of Christ again relates to the glory of God. And then in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, in order they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the earth. And here he refer it's a reference to his full deity. So we see the two nuances come together in different ways, and you have to study the context to see what they uh, what, what they actually describe. Okay, let's move on then to verse eight. The meaning of the term "temple of the Holy Spirit." What does that mean? Temple of the Holy Spirit. Once again, we have to look at the genitive. As soon as you see that word "of," you know that we have a a genitive construction, and we have to define or describe what that. Uh, means we have to have a little more precision. I wish translators wouldn't be so uh, prone to simply translate genitives with of clauses or apostrophe s and would take the um, time to be a little more precise. See, that's what's important about grammar is it gives you precision. Is this this phrase, temple of the Holy Spirit, can be taken two different ways. Once again, it can be taken as a genitive of possession. This is a temple possessed by the Holy Spirit or that belongs to the Holy Spirit. Or it can be taken as a genitive of source. Now, the thing is, if it's a genitive of source, that means that the Holy Spirit creates the temple. Now, if the Holy Spirit creates the temple, what else can be said about it? The first concept, that the Holy Spirit would also have possession or own the temple. So the second idea is the primary nuance, the primary meaning of that phrase, the temple created by the Holy Spirit. Who is it that creates this dwelling place in the believer's body? It is God the Holy Spirit. When does this occur? This is point number nine. This occurs at salvation. And the mechanics are described in Titus 3.5, where we read, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
And we've studied this in the past, that the word for washing there has to do with, is related from a, to a word that's used to translate the Old Testament concept of katharizo, or purification. And so what happens at salvation is positional cleansing or purification of the believer so that now that he is, he is cleansed, just as in the Old Testament, they came into the temple and they had to cleanse it first before uh, the Shekinah glory would enter in and take up residence. In the same way, the believer is positionally cleansed at the instant of salvation so that God the Son can take up his residence in the believer. So the purpose of the positional cleansing for the believer, point number 10, the purpose is to provide a home for Jesus Christ, a place where he can indwell. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16. Now, I don't want to look at the context. I just want to look at one phrase here. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, the implications that are buried in this verse are, are, are many, but I just want to extract a couple of things. First of all, Paul in the context is contrasting that the believers with unbelievers and uh, the whole issue of fellowship, and of course this is a great passage, parents, for you to teach your kids that they should not date or uh, marry unbelievers. And the perp- thing is that they have nothing in common, and there's no fellowship between believers and unbelievers. That's back in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 14. And the reason is explain that we are the temple of the living God. Now, who is the living God in this verse? Who is the living God in this verse? See, the phrase living God it can be just a generic term for deity. What does this mean? Well, in this verse, and this goes into point number 11, 2 Corinthians 6.16 connects the living God here with the Shekinah of the Old Testament. Because the statement, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people, is from Leviticus 26.11. And in Leviticus 26.11, we have a statement from the person who is the Shekinah glory saying, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. So Paul takes this quote from the Old Testament referring to the person who dwelt and was enthroned among the cherubim, and applies this to the present church-age believer who is the temple of that same God. So if the person who indwelt the Old Testament uh, temple was the second person of the Trinity, then once again we're driven to the conclusion that the second person of the Trinity must indwell each and every believer. This leads us to point number 12, which means, states that this means that the living God of 2 Corinthians 6.16 is equal to the God who indwelt the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity. But there's something else that's important in this verse, and that's point number 13, that in the Hebrew, Leviticus 26.16 uses the phrase among you, based on the Hebrew term betok, and that is spelled... B, and this is a very short E, it's a Shiva in the Hebrew, B-E-T-O-K, and means in the midst or among, it does not mean in. Yet Paul, when he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he brings it over from the Old Testament, he uses that phrase, in humin, E-N-H-U-M-I-N, meaning in, in you. So it goes from being a corporate presence in the Old Testament to an individual dwelling in the New Testament. Point number 14, Romans 8, 11, uses that same phrase. Uh, uh, excuse me, I skipped something. It's Paul changes the quote in 2 Corinthians six sixteen, and it is not simply in you, but it's not just the phrase oikeo, it's en oikeo, 
And Paul uses that same phraseology, in oikeo, in humen, in Romans 8, 11, of the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to our conclusion, and we made it this morning. Point number 15, it is God the Son and God the Holy Spirit who have distinct indwellings in the believer. We are indwelt by both persons from the instant of salvation. This is what Jesus said in John fourteen seventeen. That is the Spirit of truth, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Abiding with you is fellowship. Being in you, future tense, had to do with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He will be in you. And then John fourteen twenty. In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And that, again, is positional indwelling. So just as Jesus stated in John chapter 14 uh, in the upper room discourse that we would be indwelt by both the Holy Spirit and himself. So this refers to the indwelling of Christ, who is our glory and the potential for our glorification of God with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study this fantastic doctrine, to understand that each of us as believers have been made a temple for the indwelling of Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, who takes up his residence in us in order to produce your glory in us as we advance in the spiritual life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore we are all in need of a Savior. Scripture goes on to teach that God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. He died in our place. He paid the penalty for each of our sins, and every single sin in human history was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, salvation is not a matter of our works or our efforts, but it's simply a matter of accepting that free gift. And Scripture states that by saying that we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What must we believe? That he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins, and that he was buried and rose again on the third day, as stated in the Scriptures. That's all you have to do right now, right where you sit. You don't have to make a bargain with God. You don't have to join a church, walk an aisle. Uh, You don't have to participate in any ritual. All you need to do is believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we have studied today as part of this rich package of our salvation and that it may spur us on to greater obedience and greater growth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.